The scripture reading for today comes from select passages of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 58. Verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Verse 49. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Verse 53. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? This is the word of the Lord. We're beginning a new series on kind of this awkward Sunday. We're beginning a new series. And a series goes like this. It's about what, what does it mean to be a Christian? Because a lot of people grew up in the church. A lot of people know about Jesus Christ. A lot of people know about Christianity, but really without a sense of spiritual renewal that comes, a spiritual regeneration or a a spiritual sense of responsibility that comes with knowing Christ, knowing or being in the church. And so as a result, we lack the warmth and and the call of Christianity. We lack the blessings and the law of Christianity. We lack... Um, the, the beauty and what it really means to be a Christian. And Christianity then seems confusing and God seems often kind of distant and impersonal. We're going to begin, um, and, it, and it's rightfully, rightful that we begin this way, we're going to begin with a talk about the resurrection because that's where it all begins. And uh, we're going to begin with a passage in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was written to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth, Corinth was filled with young Christians that were living in a large city. Does that sound familiar to you? And the Apostle Paul says there are two things that the resurrection of Jesus Christ does. It gives us a lasting faith and it gives us a lasting hope. A lasting faith and a lasting hope. First, the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us a lasting faith. Now, remember, Paul and the, early, the earliest Christians, they were mainly Jews. They were Orthodox Jews, and they wanted nothing to do with Christianity. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus. But something happened, something happened that transformed their view of the world. It shaped their hope. It changed the way they lived. And it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Paul makes this great appeal 
this great case for the resurrection. And he, and he does it with, in three ways. In verses 3 to 4, he argues in a logical, philosophical way. In verses 5 to 8, he argues on a, on a legal level. And then in verses 12 to 15, he argues at a personal level. The logical, the legal, and the personal level. First, we're going to look at the logical level. Verses 3 to 4, he says this. He says, this is of first importance that Jesus died and he was even buried. In other words, how do you, how, how do you account for the empty tomb? How do you explain it? Because Paul's explanation is the resurrection. In ancient times, you had two dominant philosophical worldviews. Two dominant philosophical worldviews. The first was the Greek and Roman worldview. They believed that the body was weak, that the body was actually bad. It was just a bad shell. And so death was really the liberation of the soul, a liberation of the soul. And so the idea, the concept of a bodily resurrection wasn't even desirable. You didn't want that. Death was the liberation of the soul. The second philosophical worldview was held by the Jews. And they believe that the resurrection will, happens, but it's something that will only happen at the end, at the end of the world. So if you were to go to an educated Jew in that time and you asked them, why don't you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah? They would respond like this. They would say, well, look around. There's still death. There's still brokenness in the world. I still see disease. I still see oppression and injustice. None of this will ever be resolved until the end. We're never going to be free until the end. In other words, in Paul's time, the concept of a bodily resurrection was neither d- desirable nor even conceivable. They weren't looking for it. So how do you account for the empty tomb? How do you explain it? If those are the two prevailing worldviews, when Paul was writing this, how do you account for it? One hand, the disciples, they couldn't have been hallucinating because Jesus, when he often appeared to them, he appeared to them in groups. And you can't hallucinate in groups, not the same hallucination at least, right, in groups. But most importantly, they couldn't have been deceived Because these people, they didn't want to believe in the resurrection. It was not only not desirable nor not conceivable, they just didn't want to believe in this. They didn't want to, you know what Christianity was doing? The first church was mainly ethnic Jews, so Christianity was ruining their cultural livelihood. It was threatening their cultural livelihood. They had to be compelled to believe this. They had to be compelled They couldn't have been lying. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people unknowingly, willingly die for a lie. But these people, how many people do you know will be willing, knowingly, right? How many would be willing to die knowingly for a lie? Horrific deaths. So Paul makes this great logical case for the plausibility of the resurrection, at least the plausibility. But the second thing he does is he makes a legal case. He makes a legal case for the resurrection. Verses 5 to 8, he says, you know, you, you have to know what an epistle is. But 1 Corinthians uh, was a letter to the, the church in Corinth. Um, it's an epistle. The epistles are public documents. They were documents of public record, which means they were open to critique. You were writing down a truth as a testimony, as a witness and it was something that was held up in the court of law. It could have been held up in the court of law, so somebody could refute it easily. They would, they would be able to speak against it. In ancient Roman times, you had the birth of the Western legal system, so there was a heavy reliance on public accounts, public testimonies. And so Paul is putting his career on the line. He's putting his credibility on the line. 
He's putting the credibility of hundreds of people that he mentioned in the scriptures on the line. In verse 5, he says, Jesus appeared to Peter and the disciples. He's putting their credibility on the line. In verse 6, he says, Jesus appeared to over 500 people. Why does he say most of them are still alive? Because in those days, to receive this document, you could have easily just gone to any one of those 500 people or anybody who knew those 500 people, any one of them, to easily discount or discredit what they were saying. They could have easily said, no, that's not what really happened. I was there. This is what happened. He could have easily been refuted. The more people you have sometimes as a witness, it gets a bit more risky. In verse 7, he says, Jesus appeared to James and the apostles. In verse 8, Jesus appeared to himself. In other words, Paul calls out individuals. Paul calls out small groups of people. Paul calls out large groups of people. Paul calls out people who were close to him, people who were distant from him, people who barely knew him. All of them saw Jesus, spoke with Jesus, ate with Jesus, heard Jesus, touched Jesus. In other words, this is not an illusion. Paul's saying this is not an illusion. Now, that's risky because all you had to do, it would have only taken one person. One person just needed to be discounted for the whole thing to fall apart for the whole argument to fall apart. All you had to do is discredit one person in that list for the entire account to fall apart. The case could have been publicly dismantled, but Christianity instead grew. The church grew. And it grew in the midst of hardship. It grew in the midst of torture. It grew in the midst of political strife. It grew. But lastly, Paul says, the truth must argue with you at a personal level. The truth has to argue with you at a personal level. Verses 8 to 11, Paul refers to his own account, his own encounter with Christ. Who is Paul? He was a well-respected Pharisee, which means that he was incredibly righteous. He was incredibly religious. But Paul was violently discontent that the small, growing number of Jewish converts to Christianity were threatening his sense of righteousness. They were threatening his sense of worth. And he grew violently discontent to the point where he had them murdered. In other words, Paul himself didn't want to believe. He says, I didn't want to believe this. It was ruining my life. Everything that I had attained, everything that I had built up in my life, it was ruining that. Everything that I had staged as my source of worth, as my source of righteousness, and this small group of, of Jewish converts, they were ruining it. They were challenging it. But he said, but I had to believe. I had to believe. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changed Paul's life. You know, he appeals. He says, I didn't deserve this. He says, I am the least of all the apostles. I did not deserve this. And here's what he's saying. You never come to Jesus just to improve your life. You never come to Jesus just because you have an agenda and you realize, I need God to help me. I need to worship God. I'm going to give uh, tithes. I'm going to give some offering because I want Jesus to help me fulfill my agenda. You never come to Jesus for improvement in your life just as some sort of a, uh, as a supplement to your life to fulfill your own agenda. You don't come to Jesus just because you need healing. You may be very, very broken, very, very guilty. You can't come to him and just say, you know, I just need some healing. I just need some God in my life. It's going to make me feel better. You don't come to Jesus just because, well, I know that, you know, they said God forgives. I just need some forgiveness in my life. You, Paul's saying, Paul doesn't use that to appeal to the people in Corinth. That's not what he says. He says, I, I'm saying all these things to you 
because I want you to come to him because he's real, because the resurrection happened. Listen, we all have to struggle with this. There's not a single person in this room that can avoid addressing the reality of the resurrection in their lives. You have to let the truth and the reality of the resurrection argue with you. You have to let it convince you. You can't believe in the resurrection because it satisfies your deepest needs. You have to believe in the resurrection because it happened, because it's true. And when you finally believe, then it will satisfy your deepest needs. Then it will fulfill your deepest needs. People say, you know, I can't believe this. It's hard for me to believe something like this because this is the kind of God I want to believe in. You know, the Bible has a lot of stuff about God I don't like and some things I do like. I'd rather believe in this kind of a God. Well, if you do that, then God is just a product of your own desires. God is just a product of your own needs. If your own mind or your own heart conjures up this image of God for yourself, then that God that you've conjured up is only going to bow, is only going to be, because it's only a product of your desires, it's only going to bow to your desires. And a God like that, a God that's a sum of your desires, will never challenge you, will never argue with you, will never conflict with you, will never disagree with you, and will never transform you, and will never satisfy you. A God like that will never satisfy you. Why? Think about this. How can a God that you've conjured up to fulfill your own desires? How can a God that's a product of your own desires ever contradict you when you hate yourself, when you feel ugly about yourself? How can a God like that convince you of anything about who you are? Only Jesus who is real, only a Jesus that you have, that you have to be compelled to believe in because he rose from the dead, because he's real, who you don't want to believe, who you ran away from, distanced yourself from, almost hated at one point, but you have to believe because it's true. That's the only kind of Jesus. When you hate yourself, when you feel ugly, only he can heal you when he says, I love you because you know it's real. Only only that can heal you. No other God you make up will ever be able to contradict you when you say, I'm ugly, I feel ugly, I hate myself. Only a real God, a real Jesus can deeply affirm you, can deeply affirm you, can deeply affirm your soul by saying, I love you. Jeremiah 31, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Only the real Jesus, a Jesus that you're running away from, that you just, you know, uh, in John chapter 6, Jesus says that, uh, that no one can come to the Father except through me. No one can come to the Son except through the Father, lest the Father draw him. And that word draw him is not just a, hey, here's an announcement, come here, everyone, come one, come all. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying no one can come unless the Father draws him. It's the image of a person who's in jail or about to go to jail, and they put a lasso around him, and they're dragging him in because they're fighting and clawing their way out as much as they can. And he says only that kind of person, again, God has to draw you in like that. It's a fight. It's always going to be a fight because we don't want to believe. He says, only though, unless you have to believe it's true, will it actually take effect. We need that. I shared this story in the past. There's this woman, uh, there was this pastor's convention uh, filled with all these Baptist patch, uh, preachers, and uh, they, were, they were in this huge convention. And uh, on the last day of the convention, um, 
you know, they had an open mic for pastors to come up and kind of share uh, encouragement or share things that they've learned uh, from this convention. And in walks this prostitute. Now, you can imagine a, a convention full of Baptist preachers and this prostitute starts walking up to the mic. And the prostitute gets up and, uh, and she says, uh, last night I had a dream. Now, if you're Presbyterian, that automatically turns like the entire room away. But she says, last night I had a dream. And in this dream, I was wearing white. And Jesus comes to me and says, would you like to dance? And so here I am, I'm dancing with Jesus. And as I'm dancing, and everybody around is horrified and watching me, Jesus leans over to me and whispers in my ear, and he says, I just want you to know that I'm crazy about you, that I'm crazy about you. The Bible says deep inside, we need somebody outside of ourselves who can whisper into our ears and say, you're beautiful, I'm crazy about you. Particularly, especially when we hate ourselves. Look at Jesus Christ, he's crucified. It happened. Historically, it happened. Look at Jesus Christ, he's resurrected. It's real, it happened. It's more real than the sum of all of your desires. And this Jesus Christ says, you're beautiful, I'm crazy about you. I died for you. Now, a God that says, I love you, that's going to make you humble. That's going to humble you. A God that says, I love you, that's going to make you humble. But a God that says, I love you, that's going to make you strong. That's going to make you bold. That's going to give you courage. In verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, I'm the least of all the apostles. I didn't deserve this. And then in verse 10, he says what? But... By the grace of God, I am what I am. He doesn't say, you know, I've studied, I I was kind of primed for this because I grew up in the synagogue and I learned the Old Testament. I learned it so well. It's the only book. I know that book by heart. And I've been raised up to follow these 635 laws to ensure that I'm obeying the Ten Commandments of God. And I did it to the perfect T because I am a legalistic, by legalistic righteousness, he says, I was declared righteous that's Paul. That's not what he says. He, says, he doesn't say, well, it was all primed, and then Jesus came to me and said, yes, you're the type of person that I want. He says, no, I'm the least of all the apostles. But his grace to me was not without effect. It's abundant, and it's full, and even to a person like me, it had effect because I was against it. Because of my goodness, I was against it because I knew so much. I was against him because I was so good. I was against him because I was so well-respected. Do you see that? He said, it's by the grace of God, by sheer grace. By sheer grace. He didn't deserve it. Humble and yet bold. Humble yet bold. On one hand, the gospel makes you incredibly real about yourself. That's humility. You realize who you really are. But on the other hand, the gospel gives you joy because it's a God that says, I love you. I chose you. I I set you apart. The gospel creates an unbreakable self-image that's born out of humility. Do you see that? You and I, we base our images, we base our self-images 
on our performance. So we spent a long time trying to craft your reputation. One of the main reasons why I didn't want to go into ministry was because what would happen is there are going to be people in the course of my life that are going to want to damage my reputation. I've seen it growing up in the church, particularly in the Asian church. I've seen the horrors of it, and I didn't want anything, I didn't want to be a part of that. You know, I'd rather be the one doing the attacking than the one being attacked. Quite frankly, that's, that's what it was. And so I didn't want to be that. I didn't want any part with that. I didn't want that responsibility, Right? And so what happens, we tend to base our self-images on our record, on our performance. We've spent a long time trying to build up this reputation. So when you actually meet up to the standards, what happens? You feel confident, but you're never humble, you see? Your confidence is built on your record, and your record is actually a lot more fragile than you think. So you're confident, but you're not humble. And what happens is if you fail or if you mess up or if you're broken, you become humble, but you're not confident. How is Paul the least of all the apostles, and yet he says he's going to be confident? Do you see any weakness there? He's confident. Why do you see that? He says it's by the grace of God. That is stronger than oak. In the gospel, we know that we are so sinful, only God could die for us. And yet we are so loved that God gladly died for us. Do you see that? Look at the grace of God. Look at the love of God. Sheer grace. We're both sinners and loved at the same time. We're both fallen and redeemable at the same time. And so Paul's able to move ahead. And he says, I'm not in my sins because of the resurrection. He says, verse 10, his grace to me is not without effect. In other words, Jesus Christ paid the price for me. You know what that means? Tim Keller, my favorite preacher, Tim Keller, he says, he uses this illustration. He says, if you commit a crime, And there's this debt to society that mounts up, you know, two years in jail. You have to go to jail. To pay off that debt, you have to go to jail. So when you get released, when you're out, what that means is the debt is paid. How do you know that the debt is paid? They open up the jail cell and they say, you're out, you're free. When they let you out, you know the debt is paid. Jesus Christ died for your sins. How do you know he actually paid the debt? Because he's out. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he's out. Because he's free. And so Paul says, therefore I am not in my sins because of the resurrection. Because of his union with Christ. Because he is in Christ for you. This gives us humility because it's not deserved. And it gives us a boldness because it's real. Because it happened. It's not some feeling that you have. It's not some experience that you had. It's because of the reality of the event of the resurrection. It's true. History news. When we talk about the gospel, it's good news. That's what he's saying. Now, that's very important for us, right? Because if you do not believe in the resurrection, then you have to come up with an alternate explanation for the birth of the church and the progress of the church and the growth of the church. Read Rodney Stark's Rise of Christianity. Very scholarly account, one of the New York, a New York Times bestseller, written by at the least probably, a not, I believe, uh, somebody who's not necessarily a believer, but read it. It's a, it's a historical account of how this person explains why the church has grown and how it came to be. Let the Bible challenge you. Let God's truth challenge you. Let the resurrection challenge you. And the Holy Spirit's going to come. And He's going to give you this lasting faith. At that, it's gonna, it may start 
at uh, some logical level. It may move into some uh, legal or philosophical level. It may, but it has to become something that reaches the personal. And when it does, it's going to give you a lasting hope. And that's the last point. The gospel gives us a lasting point. A lasting hope. That's the second point. Hope for what? Four things. I'm going to go through this very quickly. Okay? First, in verses 35 to 52, the resurrection gives us a birth into a new you, a new version of you, a new you. Right now, Paul says, you have an earthly body. Your life is like Adam's. Adam in the book of Genesis is broken, sinful, falling into decay. You take the sum of all of your best qualities, all of your positive qualities. Think about your youthfulness. Think about your energy. Think about your passion. Think about your beauty. Think about your creativity. Think about your sense of humor, your relationships. Take the sum of all that is good about who you are. Take your physical abilities, your mental capacities, your logical senses, all these things, your emotional stability. Paul says, at best, they're all fading. They're all fading. But Paul says, one day there will be a new you. And all your sins and all the misunderstandings in your life and all your fears and all your insecurities, all the things that your parents put on you that you've been trying to get rid of but you know you never will. It's why we're always searching for a sense of worth in our lives. Paul says that body has to die. That body has to die. And then, just like when it dies, just like a seed coming up in spring, it's going to burst into a flower. And after that body splits and falls, there's going to be a new you with a new core. That's what he says. And when you're planted in the resurrection body, it's going to burst anew. And then you get that body that you, you know, you're going to get that body that expresses who you were meant to be. You're going to get that kind of a body. It's going to be a beautiful body. It's going to be a glorious body. You're going to get to experience the real you, the true you. Here's a question for you. What does a humbler version of you look like? What does a wiser version of you look like? What does a a more selfless version of you look like? What does a sacrificial, a more sacrificial version of you look like? We tend to look at newness. We say, man, I need to, read new, I need to new, make my life new. We think about a new car. We think about a new look. We think about a new house. We think about maybe a new girlfriend or a boyfriend, some of us, a new spouse. We think about a new job or a new career for that matter. A new way of making money. Some way to increase our options and potential and joy. No, Paul doesn't say that. Paul's talking about a new core, a new inside, a lasting inside, something that's going to go forever. He's talking about a new core, a new, a new you. One that's filled with limitless options and potential and joy. That's verses 35 to 52. Second, what, he, what Paul says is the resurrection is going to bring meaning to suffering. Okay, meaning to our suffering. Everyone here has lost something. Everyone here has lost something important that was not sinful to have in the first place. That's why we despair, because we've lost things that you're never going to get back, you know. My mother, I think about my mother whenever I reflect on this text. 
she lost the best years of her life. Uh, at, a, at a very young age, she lost the best years of her life after her husband passed away. And after that, it's all suffering. Life is just all suffering. But Paul says, but one day, all these things, all these sufferings will be subsumed by a joy that is coming with the return of Christ. All these things. Anything that you've ever lost that was not sinful to have, you'll have. You know, in the Chronicles of Narnia, they ask Aslan what heaven is going to be like. And Aslan says, you know, in heaven, you will never, ever be able to want wrong things. Isn't that amazing? You will never be able to want wrong things. And those things that you want, you'll have. You'll never be able to want wrong things. All those things that you've lost will one day be found. And all of your suffering, take all the suffering that there's a mountain that you've experienced throughout your life, maybe because of your wrongs, maybe because of other people's wrongs. Combine them all, put them into a jar, a giant jar, and it will be subsumed and consumed by the joy that is coming with Christ. Do you see that? Subsumed by the joy. He says death will be swallowed up in victory. Death will be swallowed up in the victory of Christ. Because no matter what you have, at the end of the day, we're going to die. No matter how wealthy you are, no matter how educated you are, no matter how powerful you are, no matter how wise you are, one day, no matter how good your reputation is, one day, death will swallow all of that. He says one day, that death will be swallowed up by the joy of knowing Christ. You will gain everything back, and it will be made new. You read in your call to worship, Jesus Christ says, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, notice he doesn't say, behold, I'm coming to make all new things. He's not going to wipe us all out and just create a new people with the same name. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, behold, I am making all things new. Anything that you've ever had in your life, if your heart has been broken, it will be whole. It will be strong. Do you see that? Do you get that? You know what that means? One day, if you look, you know, it's an amazing thing. Verses 49 to 56 Look at Jesus at the resurrection. He was restored. You know, they didn't even recognize him. He was restored. He says, one day we will be like the man from heaven, right? We will bear the likeness of the man in heaven. That's verse 39. When the disciples saw Jesus, they didn't even recognize who he was. Mary is standing right next to him, wailing because she has lost Jesus. And Jesus is saying, Mary, that thing that you've lost, you will now have in full. It has been restored and glorified, and that is going to be us. That's what he says. That's what it means to say that death has been swallowed up in victory. So all of our sorrows, that's what it means, all of our sorrows. And Jesus, you know, how did he, how did the disciples ultimately recognize him? He says, Thomas, look at me. Touch me. Look at my scars. Remember Thomas, doubting Thomas? says, unless I see the scars, touch them, touch his hands and his side, I will not believe. Jesus says, come and see. Come and touch. How did they recognize him? It was through his scars. Our suffering. That means we're going to bear the likeness of the man from heaven. One day we will bear his likeness. That means that although we'll be glorified, the scars that we bore here on earth will have meaning even there. We will understand the meaning that we will have. And that means that the sorrows themselves are still part of the glory because the glory comes through the sorrow. 
So if you're in the midst of despair, if you're in the midst of anxiety, if you're in the midst of tremendous brokenness in your life, Jesus himself, God himself is promising that one day your sorrows, death will be swallowed up in victory. And it can only come through death. We will bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Our losses will be swallowed up by the victory. Death will be subsumed in the victorious joy of knowing Christ. You know what that means? Because of the resurrection, our suffering matters. Look at Jesus, completely abandoned my God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, I've been forgotten. And yet God, through that forgottenness, he was active in the suffering. He never, even though he left me, he never left. He never left. He never abandoned us. Through that suffering, completely abandoned my God, In fact, it was through that suffering, it was through that death that salvation came into the world. Jesus had to die. It was through that death that the victory would come. You see that? And the Holy Spirit raised Jesus up from the dead in three days, and that's what he's doing. And that means that in our suffering, God is raising us up as well to become more like Jesus. Do you see that? On one hand, What this means is you don't ever desire suffering. But on the other hand, when suffering comes, it can't ruin you. The only thing that could have ever ruined you, Jesus absorbed. It can't ruin you. Rather, God is using it to shape you. God is using it to mature you. God is actually using it to complete you. That is an amazing thing. The third thing the resurrection does Verses 50 to 56, the resurrection promises that the perishable will become imperishable. In other words, you're not not going to become less physical. You're actually going to become more physical. In our modern movies today, they think of the resurrection as something that happens and we kind of birth ourselves into these ethereal beings in a dreamlike world. That's what it means to become more spiritual. That's what it means to become more imperishable. But in actuality, to be imperishable is to become more physical, to become more substantive, to become more solid. In other words, you're going to last. You're not going to deteriorate. Right now, your minds, your bodies, your heart, they're all corroding. They're corroding because of sin, and they're just corroding because of the effects of sin. There's just brokenness and aging and death. But you won't just have a new you one day. You're going to have a you that's going to last. It's going to be glorified, perfected, and completed, and it's going to last. Earthly bodies, from the moment that they're born, they become less and less of a body. That's just the reality. It's just a fact of life. We become less and less. But Paul's saying, when you receive the gospel, one day you will have a spiritual body, and you're going to become more whole, more complete, more enabled, more in accordance with the design in which you were built and created more in according to the law. You're going to be built in accordance with it. Do you see that? That means that right now, you take the sum of all your greatest qualities. It is just a foretaste of what God is designing you to become. That is beautiful. Verse 54, he says, you'll be clothed with the imperishable. You'll be clothed with immortality. You know what that means? There are things that right now you cannot do. No matter how strong you are, fast you are, smart you are, wise you are, athletic you are, because right now you are perishable. Right now you are mortal. If you're, but one day, if you're a singer right now, you're going to sing even better. Some of you are tone deaf, right? Your voice is going to be beautiful one day. 
Some of you, you sit there and you're struggling to write. Oh, you would rather take 10 exams than write one paper. One day, you're going to be published. And it's going to be beautiful and glorious. I am a terrible musician. One day, I'm going to be able to play Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 3. And I'm going to play all the instruments and record it onto one track, and it's going to, it's going to be me. You see, that's what it's going to be. If you're blind, one day you're going to be able to see the beautiful gloriousness of starry night. You're going to be able to see that, all the colors. You're going to be able to behold a Van Gogh and marvel at that. Do you see that? And it gets even better. Verse 50. He says, the imperishable would inherit the kingdom of God. The word kingdom here is the, word, uh, the Greek word for administration, and it's used primarily in the context of justice. That means every one of us here has been betrayed. Every one of us here has been the victim of some form of injustice, and every one of us here has seen the brokenness of the world and the injustice and the oppression and the tyranny that exists in our world today. And he says, one day God is going to wipe it all away. He's going to wipe away everything. He's going to wipe away everything that's wrong with the world. He's going to undermine it. He's going to subvert it. He's going to overturn it. That means all poverty will be gone. All oppression will be gone. You know what that means? How you view the earth today matters. And how you treat the earth today matters. You are, it's not like what you do here is insignificant. It is a foretaste of what is to come. What you think about the world, how you view the world, how you treat the world matters today. Lastly, the resurrection promises the death of death. Verses 54 to 57. Where is thy sting? The word sting here is the Greek word kentron, which means uh, it's, it's not the, the sting of like the bite. You know, he's not talking about the bite sting, right? He's talking about the poison in the sting. In other words, when you die, it's not because you're dying because of the bite. It's painful. But the venom, the power of the bite is what kills you. That's death with a capital D. When death stings, it's the poison of sin that kills us. It's the poison of sin that wastes us. But because of the resurrection, the Apostle Paul says, there's no more venom in the sting. There's no more venom. So it hurts. There's death. It hurts. But that's all it is, a sting. It is a bite that we will scratch away and burst us into new life. There is no death. There's no more death. Death is swallowed up in victory, he says. Movies today portray death as her friend. Movies today portray death as something that you've got to connect with, get in touch with it, connect with it, embrace with it, because it's a good thing. It's, a, it's just a passageway into the next life, right? That's what movies teach us. Death is not your friend. That is not what Paul says here. Paul does not here imply that death is your friend, that you need to connect with it, be, be friends with it, embrace it. That is not what he says. Death, if you do not believe in the resurrection, if you cannot account for the resurrection of Jesus Christ in your life, and then what that means is that death is not your friend because death is the end. And that means that our lives are going to be frantic and searching for meaning. There's going to be a constant frantic search, and it's going to kill us. That search will kill us until our actual death. It will corrode our souls until we actually experience death itself. Paul says, there is no more venom in this death. Without the resurrection, death is not your friend. 
It's going to tear away everything that you are and everything that you have. But Paul says there is no more victory. And there's no, death no longer has victory, no longer has power because there's no more venom. There's no more power. It's been swallowed up. That's what he's saying. And so we don't fear death. It is an enemy that we do not fear because there's no more poison. You know what that means? This is the end of regret. This is the end of guilt. This is the end of looking back on your life and deeming it a failure. Do you see that? If you do that, that venom, that's the venom. It's going to course through your life every day. That's why you're afraid. That's why that there's this constant frantic search for meaning in life. But Paul says, if you believe in the resurrection, there is no more sting. And that means you can look death in the eye, and death is an enemy. You can say, yes, you can hurt me. Yes, you can reduce me. Yes, you can wither me. Yes, you can consume me. Yes, you can kill me, but you will only renew me. You will only remake me. You will only complete me. How does it happen? Look at the cross. Who swallowed the poison? Who swallowed the venom? Jesus Christ, when he was being arrested, he turns to Peter and he says, Peter, put away your sword. Peter, he, he, wanted, to, he wanted to go on a ramp. He took out a sword. Jesus says, I want you to put away your sword. Why? What does that mean? What he's saying is, Peter, I've come here not, I've come here to bear judgment, not to bring judgment. I've come here to drink the cup of God's wrath, not to pour it out. In other words, Jesus Christ came to swallow the venom to take the poison. How do you bear the likeness of the man in heaven? You have to behold the man who came to bear the likeness of man on earth. How do you trust that suffering has meaning? You have to behold the man who suffered ultimate suffering, ultimate meaninglessness. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, now my life has no meaning. If God has turned away from me and I've been eternally separated from him in this death, my life is meaningless. How can the perishable become imperishable? Behold the imperishable that has become perishable. How can the perishable, how can the mortal be clothed in immortality? Behold the immortal, clothed himself in mortality, made himself vulnerable to the point of becoming a baby, and then further vulnerable to the point of death on a cross. Jesus Christ became sin so that we could become his righteousness. Jesus Christ became mortal so that we could become imperishable. How how do you not fear death? I mean, that is not an easy task. You don't just tell somebody, hey, don't be afraid of death. How do you not fear death? How do you not fear judgment? Even we fear judgment from one another. How do you escape? How do you not fear judgment? How do you not fear guilt? How do you avoid the wrath of God? It's because Jesus Christ swallowed the poison. One of my favorite hymns, we never sing this hymn because we just don't sing this hymn. It's not one of those hymns that has good music. And uh, nobody in modern church ever sings this hymn. But one of the verses, it kind of goes like this. It says that Jesus Christ, he drank the last dregs of God's wrath. You know what the dregs are? It's that bitter part at the end of a cup of tea. It's the last piece, the remnants of that tea. It's still got power in it. There's still power in it. There's still tea in that, in that dreg, but it's the bitterest portion of it. It's that little piece that's re- remaining there. On the cross, 
what this hymnist is saying is that Jesus Christ on the cross was soaking up the last dregs, the last bitter pieces of that venom. So he, and he kept saying, give me everything you've got now. Give it all you've got. Pour it all out on me. I'm going to suck it all up and sink it in. Why? So that we would never have to taste that venom ever again in our lives. That's what guilt is. That's what regret is. You never have to taste it. You never, it, would, it should never course through your soul. On the cross, Jesus is saying, my body is deteriorating. Why? So that our bodies can be made new. He's saying, I'm forsaking you. You know what that means? There's no more meaning in my life. Why? So that your suffering can have meaning. On the cross, Jesus was stripped naked. Why? When you're naked, you have nothing covering you. There's not a single shield left to you to soften any blow. Why? So that he can experience the full wrath of God with no shield whatsoever so that we could be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Friends, I preach this to myself. There's not a single day when your pastor doesn't get spoken poorly of. That's the life of a pastor and a president. They get killed. They get killed behind their backs. They get killed in front of their faces. What is going to rescue me? Because the same thing that's going to rescue me from that attack is the same thing that will rescue you from that attack. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're clothed in the righteousness. There's no defense. You don't need to. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Do you see that? Death has been swallowed up in the victory of Christ. And even the grave couldn't hold him. As powerful as death is, even the grave couldn't hold him. That's true power. That's real glory. And our lives are raised up in him. Look to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look to Christ in faith. You know, it takes no work to look at something, right? When you look at something, it doesn't take any work. It just happens, right? Look to Christ in faith, and you will have a lasting hope for your lives. Do you trust that? Let's pray.